BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. My friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And Blue is in the studio with me. Hello, Blue. And we finally got our set together. Um, but, you know, uh, after the moving disaster, <laughs> man, that was incredible. In the third hour of our program, Dr. Richard Wolff is going to be with us. We're going to be talking about the economy, uh, the crises of capitalism, and the Fed chair that uh, Donald Trump, in all probability today, is going to announce. Uh, it's been pre-announced. So there's that. Donna Brazil has written a, um, a rather amazing piece for Politico. And the, the this is going to be... I suspect a big deal inside the Democratic Party, the, the, the comments that Donna, Donna Brazil is making. And, and I think on the one hand it should be, but on the other hand, we have to be very careful not to go into circular firing squad, squad mode and, and not to, uh, you know, these are cliches, throw the baby out with the bathwater, whatever. I mean, you know, to, to, to actually understand what happened. The essence of what uh, Donna Brazil is saying, and then I'm going to get into what Roy, Roy Moore is saying, which is, you know, the, the contrast to the Democratic Party, the, just the, the craziness on the, on the, in the Republican Party. But anyhow, the essence of what Donna Brazil is saying is that in traditional campaigns, when the incumbent is not up for re-election, you know, when Barack Obama was up for re-election in 2012, um, there was no doubt who was going to be on the ticket. And so the Obama campaign basically controlled the DNC. When Bill Clinton was up for re-election in 1996, the Clinton campaign controlled the DNC. But when a candidate is not up for re-election, the way it typically works is that the political parties, DNC, RNC, that the party does not turn itself over to the control of an individual political candidate until that candidate has been nominated at the convention. And Donna Brazil points out when she ran Al Gore's campaign in 2000, that it wasn't until right after the convention in July of 2000 that Al Gore started putting his people in the, D in the DNC. And that what happened in this case, according to Donna Brazil, according to this piece in Politico, which is just 
fairly shocking, frankly, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, it, it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I, I, you could build a case on either side of this, and she doesn't build the reasonable case in this ar article, which I thought it was interesting. And I think that's because, you know, Donna Brazil was just given back a position on, in, the, in a, a senior management position in the DNC by Tom Perez. And a lot of people are giving Tom Perez all kinds of grief for that, and presumably giving Donna Brazil grief for it, because she was painted as being part of the in-crowd with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who basically, you know, screwed Bernie and, and operated on behalf of Hillary before she won the nomination. And what Brazil points out in the article was, yeah, in fact, you know, almost a year before the nomination was locked up, Hillary Clinton's campaign took control of the DNC, functional control. And she lays out how it happened and what the agreement is and all this kind of stuff and says she's horrified by it. And she was in tears and she was calling Bernie to explain to him, yes, it was rigged. Here's how it was rigged. Now, that's the, that's the oh, my God, the, the evil Clinton side of it, essentially. But the flip side of that would be a year before. Now, we're talking the middle of 2015, right? A year before the nomination was nailed down. There were no serious challengers to Hillary Clinton. There was no, no belief within the Democratic Party that anybody was going to challenge her. And, and frankly, nobody did except Bernie. There was, the, you know, that was of any consequence. Yeah, Martin, Martin O'Malley did, but, um, you know, there were no consequential challenges. And so if you're looking at this from the point of view of either somebody in the Clinton campaign or somebody in the DNC at that point in time in 2015, you might rationally and reasonably say, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be the nominee, and it's really important that we get a Democrat in the White House. So uh, let's just start acting as if she was the nominee. In fact, let's, let's move that process. Let's jumpstart that process by a year. Now, I agree with Donna Brazil. It's not the way it should happen. It's not what should have happened. It is what did happen, and, and it was wrong. We would not know this had, had Bernie not been in the campaign, frankly. And and, you know, it's particularly poignant in light of the, uh, the, the studies that were published earlier in the week suggesting or showing that had Bernie run against Donald Trump, he would have easily beat him. Uh, now, I realize that even saying that, you know, cranks up a whole bunch of people who say, yeah, but, you know, he never was seriously challenged and we never really saw the Apple research. And, yeah, well, I've seen it. And I still think Bernie would have eaten Trump's lunch. I mean... Look at what Trump had going for him, right? He, he grabs women's crotches and all this other stuff. I mean, this, seriously? So, anyhow, I, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, to see if the Democratic Party takes this information and decides with this information that they're going to make the Democratic Party more transparent and more responsible, more responsive, excuse me, um, or if they're going to go into uh, insulated mode. I think it's on the verge of breaking open. I think, and I think that this is a good thing. I think it's a good thing for political parties to overcome stasis and to overcome stagnance and, or stagnant, what is, what is the word, you know, becoming stagnant. And, and periodically, you know, this is a variation on Jefferson's suggestion that, you know, every generation should reinvent the Constitution, that there should be a political revolution in the United States every 18 to 20 years. And that's what I see happening right now. And I see this revolution happening inside the Democratic Party. 
Now, the Republican Party's had a re revolution as well. It's been taken over by a group of plutocratic fossil fuel billionaires, largely fossil fuel. There's also gambling billionaires and, and other kinds of billionaires, but fossil fuel billionaires are really running the show, at least, you know, that, that's how it looks from the outside. So, you know, the Republican Party has had their revolution, and they're, they're going down this path of more and more authoritarianism. The Democratic Party is walking back from authoritarianism, which I think is, is a great thing. Um, the, the, other, the other thing I wanted to talk about is Roy Moore. Judge Roy Moore says that uh, religious liberty comes from God, not the Constitution. Why is it that in those countries where religious liberty doesn't exist, that they talk mostly about God? And in those countries where re religious liberty does exist, they have essentially strong constitutions, for lack of a better phrase. And what about that suggestion of Roy Moore's that our rights come from God and not the Constitution, including our religious liberty rights? Is that a view, a worldview that our founders embraced? Is it something that they would, that they would go for? Well, actually, it turns out, no. Uh, ben Franklin, in his autobiography, Toward the Mystery, he wrote, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson wrote this in his personal diary, February 1, 1799. When the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never on any occasion said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion. And they thought he should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare publicly whether he's a Christian or not. However, Justin writes in his diary, uh, Jefferson writes in his diary, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address except partic particularly except that which he passed over without notice. George Washington never said a word on the subject in any of his public papers except in the valedictory letter to the governors of the states. And he goes on from there. This is the Tom Hartman Program. But the really amazing quote is the, I have sworn eternal opposition to any form of tyranny over the minds of men. We'll get to that in a second. Welcome back. Benny, watching Free Speech TV on the Dish Network. Hey, Benny, what's on your mind today? Oh, not much. I just, uh, oh, <clears throat> thinking about uh, sustainability. Mm -hmm. There was a gal on C-SPAN, and she'd been involved with uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, one of them, but mm -hmm. she was talking about what their goal was in getting home ownership up and ignored sustainability. Hmm. And, yeah, so that was a part of the housing bubble. Yeah. But then the other thing is, I mean, so, but our democracy with uh, unlimited money going into the elections and uh, the lobbyists, right. it's unsustainable. Yeah, yeah, you've noticed. You know? I agree. And unless the Democratic Party thinks along those lines, they're going to be unsustainable. Yeah. 
Well, this is... When they realized after this last election, and, and I don't know if they did have, but it's got to get back to the grassroots. they got to get in touch with the workers, the families, and get out of the Beltway bubble. Yeah, I, I totally agree. make some real changes. I mean, my grandkids are having a hell of a time. Yeah. And it keeps getting worse every year. I mean, when I grew up and you grew up, things got better all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now and they just keep getting worse and worse. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Benny, uh, we'll see where this goes, and we'll continue the conversation. Thanks for the call, and thanks for sharing your, your observations. Bob in uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's up? Uh, Tom, I have a question. Uh, I guess it was Paul Ryan was just talking about this 20% corporate tax rate mm-hmm. as as opposed to the 35, I guess it is now. And I was just wondering, if if they do close those loopholes, uh, do you think that might be a little bit better, having the 20 and no loopholes? Or do you think Paul Ryan's just kind of... Uh, Wishful thinking? I guarantee it's not wishful thinking. It's a scam. I guarantee you that the corporate loopholes that are used by big transnational corporations, the ability to stash money offshore, for example, the ability to expense things, the ability to use uh, uh, tax-deductible stock options as a form of compensation, um, and then the and then the executives who are thus compensated only pay a maximum of 20% in interest or in- income tax on the money that they make. All of those things will remain intact. Those, those are the biggest loopholes, and those are the things that the Republicans are not going to touch. They're not going to touch the deductibility of executive salaries. They're not going to touch the, the uh, deductibility of, of uh, travel. They're not going to touch the deductibility of company cars. They're not going to touch the deductibility of company jets and company cruise ships. They're not going to touch the deductibility of fancy company atriums. They're not going to touch the deductibility of companies spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on lobbying. They're, all of those loopholes are going to remain in place. The, this, those this, are the loopholes that, that they get away with now, Yeah, right. right. Those are the loopholes where corporate America, that corporate America uses most aggressively to avoid paying any tax at all. Uh, they're jurisdictional or they have to do with compensation or they have to do with what is, you know, what form of deductions can a corporation take. None of those are going to be seriously questioned at all. The only loopholes that they're looking at are the ones that people like you and me use, home mortgage interest, for example. So anyhow, Bob, I got to run. We'll be back. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent in my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to keep having to take breaks or to stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com, that's the letter X chair, T-H-O-M.com, not only will they knock $100 off the price, but they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code Tom. Just go to xchairtom.com now. I love my X chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom. That's xchairtom.com. Check out xchairtom.com, and be sure to use THOM as the promo code for your $100 discount. So just to, so Judge Bohr, 
uh, Roy Moore running for the United States Senate from Alabama. He's got uh, a Democrat challenging him who actually has a good chance at this. But Moore is activating the, the worst impulses of the, of the Fox News hard right, of the, of the American Taliban hard right. So what did the founders actually think about Christianity and religion and morality and all that kind of stuff in government? Well, George Washington worked out the treaty with Tripoli. It was signed into law by John Adams in 1797. And it reads, and I quote, as the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion and has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims, and as the same states have never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. But the founders realized that this wasn't just an issue of being Christians or not. They wanted to take, they wanted to prevent warlords from coming to power in the United States. Keep in mind, you know, Jefferson back, back in the day talked about the three kinds of tyranny. Uh, tyranny by the rich, that's feudalism or fascism or oligarchy. Tyranny by warlords, that's, you know, strongman government. And tyranny by churches, it's the, the priests taking over. Those were the three tyrannies that he feared. And so they, he didn't want to, the, the way that they stopped the warlords from taking control of the United States is by making the commander-in-chief of the armed services a civilian, the president, and taking away from the president, the second Article II branch of government, taking away from the president the power to make war and giving it exclusively to Congress, the Article I branch, the first among equals, the group that gets the, that 100% of the members of the House of Representatives are up for re-election every two years, 100% of the Senate every six years, 30%, you know, about, or, yeah, about a third of the Senate is up for re-election in any given election cycle. So by doing that, they eliminated the possibility of a president being responsible for perpetual war, and you know, which is a good thing. I mean, James Madison said about perpetual wars that in war, the discretionary power of the executive, the president, is extended. His influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced to the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war and in the degeneracy of manners and morals engendered by both. No nation can preserve its freedom in the, in the midst of continual warfare. But I think one of the most important quotes is, uh, well, just, since we're talking about Madison, there's just one more Madison thing. Uh, James Madison's first official veto was striking down a law that gave money. The federal government had been running poor houses through the George Washington presidency, through the John Adams presidency, through the Thomas Jefferson presidency, and now you've got uh, James Madison as president. And the, the religious folks in Congress came forward and said, you know, instead of the federal government administering the poorhouse, we should give this money to the churches and let the churches run the poorhouse. 
And they actually passed that through Congress, the House and the Senate. And James Madison vetoed it. And his veto message says, and I quote, because the bill gives the church an authority to provide for the support of the poor and the educated of poor children of the same, this would be a precedent for giving to religious societies a legal agency, a legal responsibility, a legal ability to carry into effect a public and civil duty. In other words, Madison didn't want churches anywhere near educating or caring for poor people. But, you know, one of the most interesting is Jefferson saying, I've sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny imposed upon the mind of man. It's actually from a letter to, uh, to a, an old friend of his, uh, Benjamin Rush. And he says, uh, Dear Sir, I promised you a letter on Christianity, which I have not forgotten. I do not know that it would reconcile the genus irritable vatum, that's the angry priests, uh, who are all in arms against me. Their hostility is on too interesting a ground to be softened. The delusion on the cause of the Constitution, which while it secured the freedom of the press, also covered the freedom of religion, has given the clergy a very favorite hope of establishing, of obtaining an establishment of a particular form of Christianity in the United States. The returning good sense of our country, he's talking about the possibility that he himself could be elected president in 1800. The returning good sense of our country threatens abortion to their hopes. And the preachers believe that any portion of power confided to me, such as being elected president, will be exerted in opposition to their schemes. And they believe rightly, for I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of men. And this is all they have to fear for me, but enough, too, in their opinion. Thomas Jefferson laying it out. And when he was talking about the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, in his diary, again, he talks about how uh, you know, they, they tried to change the wording. He says, where the preamble to the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom declares that coercion is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, uh, an amendment was proposed by inserting the words Jesus Christ. The insertion was rejected by a great majority in proof that they meant to comprehend the Jew, the Gentile, the Christian, the Mohammedan, and the Hindu. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And the infidel of every denomination. Jefferson writes. We'll be back. And welcome back. Jill watching Free Speech TV in Princeton, Minnesota on the Dish Network. Hey, Jill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, You know, your last hour was just bringing me to tears. And then Tony started to speak up about, you know, racism. And then I... No, I actually I was going to try to tell a funny in a way that I hope Tony can understand. Um, I was coming home from my uh, Lake Theory and moved to amend meeting, and I was pulled over by a, a, a deputy sheriff, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a light a headlight out, and he had a, a trainee who was standing directly behind my Jeep, which my Jeep has a bumper sticker which says, Move to Amend. Mm -hmm. And it also says, Honk for a Political Revolution. Mm -hmm. While he's staring at uh, my bumper sticker, and the deputy sheriff was back checking out my driver's license and, and, and everything else, I, for a moment, thought, after all of the shootings and everything, do I dare to bend down to grab a few pamphlets? 
And, you know, because somebody's right behind me, I, oh, no. Well, this is, I'm this a is, this, exactly. I was going to say, no, here's, here's where I, white I privilege comes in. Yes. And so I did that. Mm. And, I, but for a moment I thought, I did think, and I, and I remembered, nope, I'm a white female. I live in Minnesota and I'm on a nice highway. And to Tony, um, yeah, I understand racism, but I thought about what that instant was. Anyway, to bring the story back to fruition, the deputy sheriff gave me a nice, yeah, your headlights out, no ticket, of course, nice. And I gave him a pamphlet about move to amend (laughs) and told him I came from my meeting from Brainerd. I drive uh, an hour and a half to my meeting, and I said, we are, what we are doing is trying to say that corporations aren't persons, which has been in our United States Constitution little by little since the 1800s. And citizens are not corporations. The second part is, of course, speech is not money. Right. The biggest part is corporations shouldn't have the word persons attached to them. So how did and he respond? He, 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 he took the pamphlets, and then I saw both of them kind of, while I was okay to go and move along, looking at the pamphlets. So I huh. thought that was kind of cool. Okay. Nice story, and, and nice to help, help Tony know that, you know, in my white world, I did recognize, and, and he feels mm. good. Yeah, what it, what it would have been like. I think more and more white people are starting to get some sense of the black experience in this country. And, you know, some of them just discard that. But a lot of them, I think, are experiencing genuine empathy. Um, Jill, well, thank you. I'm very new call. to politics. Yeah. Um, I Jill, think- I got to run. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, we're going to hit this break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Ray in Austin, Texas. Hey, Ray, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, great show. Um, So I'm calling because, okay, so if you looked at America, the collective, the majority as a person, right, I'm not talking about individuals, but America as a country, we would be overweight, we'd be high on all sorts of drugs, we're obsessed with celebrities, sports, money, television, right? There's all these things that we're just totally distracting from, the police brutality, the fact that we're deporting 10-year-olds with cerebral palsy, our roads look like crap, but we don't seem to want to do anything about it. We're just stuffing it, like, deeper and deeper. But sooner or later, you know, these things are going to come out. And you know history, you know, well. And so I'm just curious from your take, like, how much longer, because the way I see it is we cannot continue to go down this path without some sort of reckoning or correction of some kind taking place the same way as a person, as an individual who's doing all these things that our country's doing, is sooner or later going to have to deal with that pain. You know, it's the, it's the line that James Baldwin says, right? It's either going to be willing or it's going to be unwillingly that we're going to have to confront these things. At least the way I see it is we can't keep going down this path. So from what you know about history 
and the way you see our country going, what is that reckoning going to look like? How are we going to deal with that pain? Will it ever happen? I'd love to know what you think based on just the way you see it. So thank you. Well, as, as kind of a, you're welcome, Ray. As kind of, and, th and thanks for the call. As, as kind of a variation on, on uh, uh, Winston Churchill's comment that uh, democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than any others that have been developed. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing. It's not word for word, but close to that. Um, I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's the same issue is that, that, yeah, we've got these crises, you know, you, you identified a bunch of the, the, the negatives as it were. Um, but we also have some extraordinary positives and we, and, and we need to be focusing on those and we need to be moving toward those. Um, frankly, I, I just, you know, I think that that's where, where we need to move. Mike in Cleveland, Georgia. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yeah, good morning. Uh, a, a, a couple of things. Uh, the uh, I got a phone call from uh, Intercessors Prayer for America. Mm -hmm. They've got some kind of a, a a phone thing going on, computer thing going on this weekend, and they're talking about the whole of America being attacked. I think it's a I think it's a pretty dangerous propaganda type affair going on and one of the things in their newsletters was they're calling these antifa folks antichrist i get right. this garbage because i live here in georgia yeah mike but, i guarantee uh, you the the main message of all of that is going to be send us money yeah it may be the main message but they're talking about an imminent attack on the entire united states like somewhere around the sixth or something you guys need to pay attention to this garbage well but a second issue that has been on my mind since I heard you the other day talking about nuclear stuff. Mm. I do all that big commercial garbage. When you take and put all that heat, whether it's through cooling towers or right directly cooled by the ocean, or down at Hutchison Island, different places like that, all this heat is going right directly into our atmosphere and into our ocean, and you can't add that much heat, millions and millions and millions of gallons of boiling damn water you can't add that to the program without taking it into account, and I ain't never heard anybody mention it. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Mike. I, you know, and, and one that probably the folks at Beyond nu Nuclear would know the answer to, uh, is the contribution to global warming of nuclear power, and for that matter, of conventional power plants. I mean, you know, coal-fired power plants also have to have water to cool them. Um, is the contribution to global warming of, of power generation is it consequential? Uh, you know, does it does it represent one one hundredth of one percent of global warming, or does it represent eight percent of global warming? Right? What is it? Uh, how co consequential is it? I don't know the answer to the question, but it's a fascinating question. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. Casey in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Casey, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Good. It's on your mind. Good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad this came out with the whole Donna Brazier. I know, you know, she's taking one from the team or whatever, but she was just as much as fault as. You know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Roberta Lang, Hillary herself. I mean, she she was a big culprit, too. Well, I would encourage and, you to read uh, her piece in Politico, because what she's asserting is that she had no idea. And she had no idea until she went back and she looked up the documents. And she's and she's got the document and she's got the piece of it and all this kind of stuff. And again, it's 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 something that the political party, the DNC, did. Uh, in order to increase the probability that they would win the election in 2016, which is a entirely reasonable thing. Um, but on the other hand, it's not, it's not the way it should have been handled. 
So, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a rebooting of the Democratic Party. We'll fix the superdelegate problem and, 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 and deal with some of these issues. But, but yeah. we got to get rid of these cancerous people, Tom. I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Perez. I mean, these people are the establishment. They, they are what's wrong with the Democratic Party. And they're running down the same road as what lost them in the election. You know what I'm saying? It, I, I don't see any – I don't see – the Democratic Party fixing the problems. They I, just want to say, you know, just be big boys and put the big pants on and just vote for us anyways. Well, here's, here's, here's the reality, Casey, is that the they should be, we should be referring to this they as a we, right? In, in other words, you know, the, the Democratic Party, if, if, if enough of us were inside the Democratic Party, we're supporting the Democratic Party, we're participating in the Democratic Party, then we wouldn't be sitting around saying, Oh, gee, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, that terrible Donna Brazil. But, you know, I, 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 I was one of Donna's biggest critics when it came out that, that uh, she might have been involved in the, in the rigging of the, of the primary, essentially. And, and what she's asserting in this piece is that she had nothing to do with it and that it was entirely Debbie Wasserman Schultz's fault. And I think this is D Donna Brazil pleading so for why is Debbie forgiveness, essentially. still part of the Democratic Party? I don't get it. Because she's why an elected representative in the state of Florida. She's no longer running the party. She resigned from the, from the leadership and the management of the DNC. She's gone. She's just a congresswoman from Florida now. But she really screwed up. She screwed up big time in 2016. And she screwed up in part by signing this agreement with Robbie Mook, who is running the, the, the Hillary campaign, that the Hillary campaign would essentially take over the DNC back in 2015 in exchange for paying off about $10 million worth of debts that the party had. And, you know, you, can, you could argue it was malicious. I don't think it was. I think it was an effort by the party to win an election. But it certainly shouldn't have happened and should not happen again. Casey, thanks for the call. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The Fox News Network is, in, in my humble opinion, promoting authoritarianism. And, and this, and, and it's not just Fox News. I mean, it's this whole right-wing ecosystem, media ecosystem. And authoritarianism is the go-to place for Donald Trump and his compatriots. And it's been the go-to place for, hard, for the hard right basically forever, authoritarianism. We, we, you've seen it rise in, in countries around the world and among governments around the world. Um, this is one of the things, you know, when people are stressed, when people are freaked out, when people feel like they, they, got, they got nothing, or the future isn't you know, gonna be as good as they had hoped for, or even the present is not what they expected that it should be. When that happens, people tend to turn to parental figures. You know, mommy, daddy, take care of me. And so Daddy Trump comes along, Big Daddy Trump, and says, oh, Big Daddy, I'll take care of you. I alone can save the nation. Remember that? And out of that authoritarianism comes the destruction of our, of our government. Out of that authoritarianism comes crony capitalism, comes, comes a whole crony ecosystem of, 
of, you know, Scott Pruitt saying, well, actual scientists can't work for the, for the, uh, the, the EPA any longer. You have to be a, a shell scientist. You have to be a scientist who works for industry. But research scientists, no, we don't want to hear from them anymore. We don't want those thinking research. And it's not just that. I mean, you know, this Dana Milbank in today's Washington Post. The title is The Other Huge Scandal Miller Brought to Light This Week. And he starts out talking about Sam Clovis. Now, I've talked about Sam Clovis on this program a number of times. I'm pretty sure I've met Sam Clovis a couple of times at, uh, at these right-wing talk show events and, and uh, you know, radio rows and whatnot, although I, I frankly, I have no clear uh, recollection of him. It's just when I see, when I see him on TV, I, I, you know, it's like, oh, I've met that guy. I just don't specifically know when and where. But Sam Clovis was a right-wing talk show host. He has no scientific background. And Donald Trump has appointed him to be the head scientist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the agency that oversees the safety of your food and mine. The head scientist. A guy who doesn't believe in climate change. A guy who doesn't believe in science. And who is not a scientist. He's a talk show host. A right-wing talk show host. Is going to be the head scientist for the United States. Now, now probably he's actually not going to be the head scientist for the USDA because it appears for the last few weeks he's been cooperating, cooperating with Robert Mueller's investigation into Donald Trump. But still, they tried that. In fact, Clovis, here's the, some of the things uh, Trump promised to hire the best people, writes Dana Milbank. And as scientists go, Clovis is an excellent talk show host. Among his scientific breakthroughs, being extremely skeptical of climate change, calling homosexuality a choice, suggesting gay rights would lead to legalized pedophilia, pushing the Obama birther allegation, and calling Eric Holder and Tom Perez specifically a racist bigot and a racist Latino. Trump may want extreme vetting of uh, immigrants, but he's rather more lenient with his appointees, writes Dana Milbank. On Wednesday, he named Robin Bernstein to be ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Bernstein only speaks basic Spanish, because it's so hard to find Americans who speak Spanish. But she does have this. She's a member member at Mar-a-Lago. Seriously. A group called American Oversight had the foresight to make a records request for resumes of those hired by the Trump administration. Among the best of Trump's hires, they found Sid Bowditch, assistant to the Secretary of Energy for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. He used to work for the Meineke Car Branch in Seabrook, New Hampshire. Before that, he was the branch manager for some tire shops. So a guy who has changed mufflers and replaced tires is now in charge, the Secretary of Energy for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Brilliant, right? It's brilliant. Victoria Barton, Congressional Relations for Regions 2, 5, and 7, and 6, Department of Urban Housing and Urban Development. She's, in other words, she's in charge of a good chunk of HUD. Prior to working for the Trump campaign, Barton was an office manager. And between 2013 and 2015, a bartender and bar manager. Milbank writes with no small amount of sarcasm, the expertise in housing policy possessed by Barton is no doubt invaluable to HUD Secretary Ben Carson, a retired brain surgeon. 
In other words, he's got no, no background in housing either. Christopher Hagan, a confidential assistant at the Agriculture Department, before working on the Trump campaign, he was, between 2009 and 2015, a cabana attendant at Westchester County Club, Country Club, in Rye, New York. According to his resume, he, quote, identified and addressed customers' needs in a timely and orderly manner. Right. He's now over there at the Agriculture Department. Nick Brusky, also a confidential assistant of the USDA, the Trump campaign worker, previously drove a truck. He was a trustee in Butler Township, Ohio at the same time, and as political noted, his resume lists coursework but no degrees. And David Matthews, yet another confidential assistant at the Agriculture Department. He developed scented candles while serving as a legal receptionist before joining the Trump campaign. So we've got a Meineke muffler guy, we've got a tire replacement guy, we've got a woman who is a bartender, we've got a guy who is a cabana attendant, you got a truck driver, no slam on truck drivers. I, you know, I've, I've met truck drivers who I would much rather were running our country than some of the people who are and do, but in any case, uh, as, a, as, as a confidential assistant at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, it seems your credential being that you used to drive a truck is not. Anyway, David Matthews, uh, yet another confidential assistant, uh, developing scented candles. So we've got quite a brain trust here. He's, he's uh, Dana is imagining a conversation. Uh, you know, uh, hey, would you like a job at the transportation department? I don't know, sir. I was an Uber driver before I joined your campaign. How about the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, I ran a coin-operated laundromat. Uh, anybody here know anything about infrastructure? Silence. I was a toll taker on the New Jersey Turnpike before the campaign. Now I'm in charge of climate science at the EPA. Anybody else? Well, I was a plumber, but they made me chief medical officer at NIH because I watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. What, they had no doctors for NIH? Well, we had one chiropractor on the campaign, sir, but I, they needed him to run NASA. A chiropractor running NASA? What's next? A musician, a strategic command? Actually, sir, the STRATCOM commander was a hairdresser. Now, that part is all facetious, right? That, that part is fake news, as it were. But Fox News tweeting, now this is Jake Tapper. I, I started out by saying Fox News has been promoting authoritarianism. Jake Tapper unloaded on them, calling them sick and disgusting. And so Fox News then unloaded on Jake Tapper. They tweeted, CNN's Jake Tapper says, Alo Akbar is beautiful right after New York City terror attack. Although Fox News left out some details, Jake Tapper fires back saying, Fox News is lying. I said it can be said at beautiful moments, wedding birth, and too often at times like this horrific terrorist attack. Allah Akbar is a prayer. If you don't understand how radical Islamic terrorists justify their evil using religion, West cannot defeat it. And, and yes, I know they do this all the time. Still, literally a day after this horrific attack, they would launch this smear at stick, sick. In this case, the they that Jake Tapper is talking about is is Fox News. He said, there was a time when one could tell the difference between Fox and the nut jobs at InfoWars. It's getting tougher and tougher. Lies are lies, says Jake Tapper. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. We'll be back with your calls after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So you think Judge Moore has a good chance at picking up a seat in the Senate? Are Americans ready for a total theocrat? Welcome back. Stephanie in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Stephanie, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Well, basically, I'm taking issue with the assertion that you made that Bernie Sanders would have won 
I realize we litigate this thing almost every day. I don't. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not well, going to. Your callers do. Yeah. Uh, basically, any kind of study that might have shown anything of that nature does not take into consideration the criminal element of the Republican Party. They stole the election. The Russians would have had a field day with a socialist running. They know all about socialism. Yeah, uh, it, it may be. Is refuse to acknowledge that we are under a socialist system in many cases, like Medicare, uh, Social Security, things of that nature. Right. They want the government out of their Medicare. They want the government out of their Social Security. The American people are dumb. Well, I don't think it's that the American people are dumb, Stephanie. I think it's that they're uninformed. And they're uninformed because our business model for news in, in the mid-1980s changed. And it changed from news is what is necessary to, in order for a radio or television station to keep their license so they have to actually provide real and good news to news is something that can make profit for the corporation that owns the network. And, and so instead of being concerned about what people need to know and what is real news, we're going to be concerned with what gets people to click, what gets people to watch. In other words, if it bleeds, it leads. That's where it's going to go. Um, so, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, as, as I was quoting that study from last week, and I, I, I had it printed out last week, and I never did it on the air because I thought as soon as I say this, somebody's going to call up and, and say what you said, Stephanie, and uh, it was not to pick on you, uh, but it's, yeah, it, we'll never know. We'll never know. I, but the bottom line is that, uh, that, you know, it shouldn't have been played out the way it played out. Stephanie, thank you for the call. Noel in Riverside, California. Hey, Noel, what's on your mind today? Okay. Um, I wanted to uh, talk about the the Christian um, conversation for a minute. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to mention that um, that real to be a real Christian in this nation doesn't mean we uh, shun any other belief or unbelief. We are just actually uh, commissioned to be like a witnesses of the love for one another. And I think that's what maybe some of the uh, forefathers meant. And what's wrong is when these casinos, Christians in name only, have the platform and they get up there and portray Christians as, you know, believing in something but not doing it, you know, mm -hmm. being phonies. Yeah. And Christian TV is, you know, worldwide. It's on the rise because they um, they be believe in the, the goodness and they act like all liberals are you know, unbelievers and believe in, like, anything goes. But I just wanted to mention, I didn't know if you know that, um, actually, God was in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and Washington, on his first proclamation, said it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge and the providence of Almighty God to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits. That's all I wanted to say, and I'm not putting down anybody, but when, like, say, when 911 happened, everybody didn't say, oh, Oh, help us trees or help us stars. They said, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I think that's like the declaration says, that's our inalienable, you know, being essence is right. to believe in God. Eventually, everybody will or they won't. Okay. So, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. We'll be back.
everyone's talking about superfoods, those nutritionally dense foods that are especially beneficial to your health. Did you know that beets are one of the most important superfoods you can put in your body? They're loaded with important, an important nutrient that increases your blood flow, which increases your energy. But who wants to be, eat, eat a pile of beets every day? Not most people. But now you can get the energy benefits of beets in a powerful concentrated superfood drink, Super Beets. Only Super Beets is made from crystals grown to exacting standards, then concentrated into superfood crystals. Super Beets promotes the body's own natural ability to produce healthy circulation for increased energy and stamina all day long. So if you want the benefits of a powerful superfood, call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com. With your first order, get another 30-day supply of Superbeats for free, plus indicator strips to see how Superbeats is working for you. And free shipping. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. That's 800-568-9889, the website tomsbeats.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is uh, Professor Richard Wolf, uh, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf2fs.com. Uh, and you can tweet him at Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Uh, Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. So tell me your thoughts on uh, this new Jerome Powell, this guy that uh, Trump says, or the news is reporting, Trump is going to nominate as uh, the Fed chair to replace Janet Yellen. Well, it's a little surprising on one hand and, and almost boringly tedious on the other. The surprise is that there's a bit of a tradition that if the economy is at least not in free fall, and you have a Fed chairperson who's been doing a reasonable job uh, in a difficult situation, that you keep that person on. Janet Yellen, as a female, which is very, very rare in these circles, would have seemed in another's time and with another president to have merited the, uh, the continuation she didn't get. Uh, instead, he's picked a banker, a and a man uh, 100% by, of, and for uh, the Wall Street uh, insider, banker, millionaire, the very people he said he would get rid of, drain the swamp from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's just, as he did with Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn and others, he's just you know, substitutes the, the bluster on the one hand and then goes to the banking uh, big shots and puts them one after another in positions of power. If this Powell proposal goes through, uh, that's what it'll be. He will also be one of the richest people ever. He's a multimillionaire, of course, uh, and a banker. You know, the last two heads of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, were academics. And the idea was get someone from outside the banking community to bring a different perspective, to bring some external supervision, to make the running of the American economy, at least the monetary side, a little less of an in-house activity of the club of monster bankers. By moving out away from Yellen and substituting Powell, uh, any pretense of an outsider is gone, 
and we're going to have one more Wall Street insider in a very, very powerful position uh, to manage, control, and direct the American economy. Yeah, uh, pretty, pretty much what you would expect, I guess. Right. <laughs> from, from I mean, the, at this point, the gap between what the man says, our president, and what he does isn't even any more surprising because it really is quite quite a pattern. Uh, lots of bluster, but in the end, he turns the government over to the very people he claimed he would never do the way his predecessors had. It turns out that whether you're Clinton or Obama or now Trump, the same people from the same circles, literally working for the same four or five big banks, are in there running the game. It, it's extraordinary. Yeah, especially Goldman Sachs. Um, yeah. the, the, I saw this, this report. The headline was, World Witnessing a New Gilded Age as Billionaires' Wealth Swells to $6 trillion. Is this a, a milestone or a landmark that we should all be noticing? What, and, and, and why is it that uh, billionaires having $6 trillion worth of wealth, which is, what, about half the annual GDP of the U.S., if I recall correctly? I thought we're around $15 trillion. Um, why would that be a problem? Well, you know, first of all, it is an, another Gilded Age. The, the term Gilded Age was coined to deal with the end of the 19th century when you had uh, the likes of J.P. Morgan and Carnegie and all those other uh, super-rich people and who lived these fantastic lifestyles uh, in the mansions on Fifth Avenue, uh, and, and bailed out the American government when it had financial difficulties in return for being given even more fantastic wealth. Um, and it was considered that this was, in the end, un-American. Uh, we stopped thinking of them as wonderful captains of industry, and we changed the name and called them robber barons instead. Uh, it wasn't that they were doing different things, it was a different time, and, and it was thought that we wouldn't do that again, that in the years in the middle of the 20th century, American capitalism justified itself on the grounds that it was making everybody middle class. So the significance of the fact that we are going backwards in terms of inequality, that we are, in fact, back in a gilded age of a tiny number of people making absurd uh, amounts of income and accumulating absurd amounts of wealth, uh, the problem is that this is very dangerous, especially in a society that had, as its previous period, this uh, whole business about middle class, middle class, middle class. You're going to have to teach the American people, and the difficulties are already obvious, that all of that talk about capitalism generating a middle class isn't true anymore, that what capitalism is now stunningly able to do is to immiserate the middle class, uh, get rid of most of it, and to concentrate the wealth that was once widely distributed in a tiny number of people uh, in the gaudiest uh, manner imaginable. And I think you're seeing, and I mean this in terms of the election of Trump uh, on, the, on the right, of Occupy Wall Street and Bernie on the left, you're seeing the, the, the dissolution uh, the, 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 the disillusionment as well of a, of a system which promised the middle class onward and upward and is now destroying it systematically. And that Gilded Age is therefore going to be, as it was in the 19th century, 
a bit of the calm before a storm of accumulated anger and rage about the deception, in a sense, that this system has practiced on the American people. Mm. So uh, we have about two minutes uh, here left, uh, Dr. Wolf. What, what should we be doing about this? Well, I think we have to bite the bullet. We have to face the fact either we want to live in a society that is extremely unequal in the distribution of wealth, or we don't. If all those wonderful stories about a great middle class, if that meant something to the American people, then they're going to have to take the steps uh, to do to do that. And, and let me be real clear. I'm not in favor of redistributing the wealth. That only creates bitter struggles uh, of the sort we are living through. The much smarter way, don't distribute it unequally in the first place. Set up businesses that don't distribute wealth in the crazy way that we do in our society now. That would be the beginning of a serious way to get at this problem. So what do you do with somebody like, you know, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, people who've gotten billions off our patent and copyright laws? Um, well, you do, yeah, you do the ap exact opposite of what the Trump administration is doing. If you saw the latest uh, wrinkle, they're going to get rid of the estate tax, et cetera, et cetera, and thereby create generations of this kind of wealth. You go the other way. You say to those people, you've had a wonderful life, you've accumulated a lot of wealth, but we believe in equal opportunity, and the way to do that is to let everybody start more or less on the same plane, and that requires us to tax estates at a high value so that we can get closer to a society that rewards effort and merit rather than one that creates, like the kings of ancient time, endlessly continuing generations of unequal wealth. Yeah, but we have that right now. I mean, you have Paris Hilton and whatnot. It's, it's, uh... it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and the latest thing I just saw, they're doubling the state tax exemption from five and a half to roughly $11 million. It's just a, it's a joke. And it's phasing out all the estate tax over the next five years. That's the latest proposal from the Republican Party. And I think what you're seeing there is the commitment of that party, particularly, to create an endless elite of super wealth. It's not only not dealing with the problem, it's pretending there is no problem and there is no limit to where this inequality will be allowed to go. Right, and that's a problem. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dr. Richard Wolf. The, uh, you can find his work at, democ at democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Dr. Wolf, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Good talking to you. Sabrina in Nottingham, Pennsylvania. Hey, Sabrina, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, I wanted to know if you were familiar with Christian Felber's book, Change Everything, Creating an Economy for the Common Good. I am not. It is so fantastic. I hope that you can uh, follow up. In can you summarize it in a few sentences? Yeah. The goal of the economy is no longer uh, endless greed, but the common good. And it's uh, based on, on human value uh, mm. needs. And they, have, they use a common good balance sheet. Uh, where high points are given to the promotion of several values, such as uh, democracy, justice, solidarity, excuse me, and so forth. And companies and corporations um, gain these points and get rewards by things like lower taxes, mm -hmm. product promotion, let's see what else, um, less expensive loans. So the goal of the economy really is is for the common good, and it's it's just the most fantastic book. I have a a small progressive think tank I run out of my home, and we're talking about this, and I just wanted to get it out there. Cool. So once again, the author and title? 
The author is Christian Felber. He's Austrian. Okay. And the name of the book is Change Everything, Creating an Economy for the Common Good. And it's being used all over the world in towns, in corporations, in countries. <clears throat> and um, it's, uh, it's fantastic. So I hope, hope you can look into it. Cool. Uh, Sean, let's keep a, an eye out for that, okay? Change everything. Thank you, Sabrina. I appreciate sure. the call. Mark in Niles, Illinois. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, Tom. Good to talk to you again. Um, this ties in with what Sabrina was just saying and JP earlier. I want to throw out my definition of an economy, which is the circulation of money, goods, and services. And if it doesn't circulate, you don't have an economy. It's just some people have stuff and other people don't. Right. And as you can get into an idea like Sabrina was just saying, what you have an economy for, why do you have you know that circulation going on? Are you going to promote uh, good things that go along with it or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is, you have to ask the question, why do we create an economy? Uh, Republicans act like economies are acts of God. They're not. They're acts of government. Governments create economies by creating currency, by stabilizing the currency, by creating a court system that can enforce contracts, by setting up the rules for contracts, by, by having jails and police officers who can actually enforce contracts and, and agreements. An economy is created by government. And so then the question becomes, why is government bothering to create an economy? And the answer, historically, has been for the common good. Adam Smith wrote an entire book about this. And, and I'm not talking about Wealth of Nations. It's, it's uh, his other book, which is uh, The moral uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments, was Adam Smith's book mm-hmm. on this topic. And it's brilliant. And, and, it, and it needs to be revisited. And we need to realize, as Americans, that you know, economies are set up. There's nothing magical about them. It's, it's like a football game. You set the rules of the game. And if you're going to say there can be 20 players on the field or 10 players on the field or whatever, however you set up the rules, that's how the game is going to end up being played. And we have recalibrated our rules since the 1980s to say that, you know, rich people can do no harm, basically, and they never have to go to jail again. And it's a terrible, terrible mess. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us kicking in, participating, being there. Get out there, get active, tag your end. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 